Welcome to another episode of Real Atheology. For this episode, we interview Dr. Felipe Leon on the metaphysical possibility of creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. This is an indispensable metaphysical doctrine to classical theists, but it has broader application to other areas of philosophy of religion as well. Dr. Felipe Leon is professor of philosophy at El Camino College in Torrance, California. He received his MA and his PhD at University of California, Riverside, and his current interests are in philosophy of religion and modal epistemology. Recently, Dr. Leon co-edited and contributed to a collection along with Bob Fisher entitled Modal Epistemology After Rationalism. Among other things, the collection indicates the recent trend in modal epistemology to seek the ground of our modal knowledge in empirical sources such as observation and observation-sensitive theory. Felipe also runs the Exapologist Philosophy of Religion blog, which has a wealth of fantastic content that listeners to this podcast will no doubt enjoy. Without further delay, here is our interview with Dr. Felipe Leon. So, Felipe, thank you so much for coming on Relay Theology. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, the name of your blog, Ex-Apologist, suggests that you were not always so skeptical of religious claims. Could you perhaps talk a bit about why and how uh, your religious or irreligious views have changed over time, and, and what, if any, role philosophy of religion played in that kind of transition? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, definitely. I was... Uh... I had a completely different view. Um, so in my late teens, I converted to evangelical Christianity, and uh, I sort of went in 100%. I um, was involved in uh, missionary activity, um, uh, evangelism, and so forth. And I, you know, I was really passionate, and I would, you know, do all sorts of weird things like read the Bible for four or five hours a day and study commentaries and pray in my closet on <laughs> uh, fast and uh, engage in solitude and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, through evangelism and uh, missionary outreach, uh, by the way, I, I was sure I was going to be a missionary to Russia. <laughs> for my oh, wow. Life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, through, through, um, through evangelism and missionary work, uh, you know, people ask hard questions. I'm like, well, that's a really good question. I'm going to have to go research that. And uh, the more I looked, the more I had to engage in uh, Christian apologetics. And so I just read vociferously, and I had questions of my own. And, you know, pretty soon you get to a level of apologetics where you're like, wow, to really understand and evaluate these arguments, I'm going to have to do some, um, go back to college. <laughs> so... I went, uh, I did my undergraduate and uh, master's and my PhD, and, uh, but about halfway through graduate school, um, I lost my faith. I, I sort of it internalized all of these arguments from all the way down to, you know, uh, um, gosh, what's his name, Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter to, you know, Alvin Plantinga and Richard Swinburne. Sure. Uh, and uh, knew these arguments inside and out and would share my faith with them. And then, uh, you know, but halfway through grad school, you realize uh, you've got enough uh, logical machinery to really evaluate these arguments. And 
it always seemed that there was some questionable premise or, uh, uh, you know, where the argument's going to hang on some some doubtful assumption. And so all my deductive arguments sort of came crashing to the ground. And then looking at the probabilistic arguments didn't fare any better. Uh, it seemed to me just to be a wash at the very best. And then uh, especially, I don't know if this is relevant to our discussion, but uh, there was always this nagging worry um, just reading the New Testament from the Gospels, through Paul's letters, through Revelation, is this thread, this unified thread uh, of a message of a conviction that Jesus was going to come back within, you know, a generation or so. Right. In some literal sense with divine judgment, and this, uh, of course, didn't pan out in any clear way. And, uh, you know, we're 20 centuries or so later, uh, and... uh, and so um, this really started nagging me at this point where all these arguments fell apart and uh, or at least didn't seem satisfying. Uh, and so I went back and researched. Um, I mean, I read the historical apologetics literature as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and looking I looked at the historical Jesus stuff that apologists themselves would recommend uh, that were, you know, not evangelical Christians. And then um, <laughs> The clear message again was, yeah, Felipe, you're right. Um, it's pretty clear that Jesus thought he was an apocalyptic prophet of an imminent end of the age and judgment, uh, but he was just wrong. Right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, I remember I was in the in a library at the university, just uh, reading, uh, finishing up reading this, and and uh, you know, right around Christmas break after finishing grading uh, my philosophy classes, and I just my faith just left me. Oh wow! So that's uh, that's where they went, which was you know really sad. It, at the same time, though, I mean, it was sort of like a, going through a painful divorce or something. But uh, there was all it's also very liberating, um, you know. Uh, so in, in a number of ways, uh, it didn't feel like uh, dad was always. Uh, I always had to get the okay from dad to live my life and shape it in the way I see fit, which is kind of. A bummer and you know issues about tolerance and issues about compatibility of science and Christianity just all fell away and that was a big relief as well um, so that's basically what happened and then that led to me sort of blogging on ex apologist and just um, talking about these arguments uh, and that's that's the origin of where I'm at now and where the blog came from Fantastic. Your your blog, I think, has, has been a great resource for, for a lot of people uh, looking into these questions. And so uh, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I, I very much appreciate uh, what you've done there. Um, now, I wanted to speak with you about some of the arguments that you've kind of advocated against classical theism that play on the essential theistic doctrine of creation ex nihilo, or you know, creation out of nothing. And, and one of your arguments uh, has as its first premise the claim that all concrete objects that have an originating or sustaining cause have a material cause of their existence. Uh, you, you call this the principle of material causality. Um, and there are, there are several terms here and, and concepts that I think listeners may or may not be uh, familiar with. And so for those less familiar with the terminology at use here, could you unpack what this first premise 
means uh, with regard to the, you know these these phrases uh, concrete objects, material cause, originating cause, and sustaining cause. Uh, so could you talk a bit about what that first premise is actually saying? Sure. Um, so uh, I should just start off with just a really intuitive sense of the argument. I mean, uh, the argument of which this is a part is just basically saying um, creating things out of nothing is impossible in the strongest possible sense. But if classical theism is true, then, you know, God created the universe out of nothing uh, and therefore, classical theism is false. Uh, and so that's the basic idea. And the key premise is this causal premise, which I call the principle of material causality, which basically says very roughly, and there's going to need to be qualifications, but basically, you know, you can't get, you, to get new stuff, you have to have old stuff. <laughs> new stuff comes from old stuff. Uh, basically, that's that's the roughest idea. Um, but right, the idea is, um, uh uh, that all concrete objects or aggregates of such that have an originating or sustaining cause have an originating or sustaining material cause, um, respectively. And the idea of a concrete object, which plays a crucial role, um, is the notion basically of substance. Um, uh, philosophically, the notion of substance has always played a central role, you know, all the way back to Aristotle. Um, but the, the notion of a substance is just basically a thing or an object, something that can uh, undergo change and remain the same. It can gain and lose properties. It can exist in its own right. Um, it's the bearer of properties and so forth. So, for example, you know, an apple would be a substance or a concrete object, and it has parts. It has a, it has a, uh, a skin and a core and so forth, and it can undergo change and still remain uh, uh, the same apple, and it has these you know, being red, being round, and so forth. Um, and so it's basically just a, a concrete object in the sense of a substance that bears properties and can exist in its own right and uh, undergo change. I mean, I don't want to pin too much on any particular notion of a substance, but sure. uh, those are, you know, I think we all have a facility with the concept to be able to use it competently in ordinary discourse, but that's the basic idea. And so, you know, there are other concrete objects. There are, you know, events like sliding into home base, you know, but it doesn't seem to be an object or, you know, surfaces of objects. Uh, you know, the one dimensional surface on top of a table seems to be an object that seems to depend on, you know, the whole table and so forth, uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, tropes or instances of properties like the particular an instance of red in an apple would be a trope. It's a concrete object too, but the the kind of concrete object I have it in mind is is the substance. Um, so that's what I mean by concrete object, and I'm saying those sorts of things need material causes if they come to be or have a sustaining cause. Mm -hmm. um, what about the other notions? By originating cause, I mean the temporal beginning of a thing's existence. So, for example, if you have a shiny new penny um, and it just came, you know, it just got punched out of a sheet of copper on the press, um, that was its originating cause, right? The stamper of that copper. Right. Um, so it's the efficient cause of its temporal beginning. Um, and so, uh, or, you know, uh, the atoms that make up a water molecule come together in, you know, uh, in chemical bonds 
in that mo in that moment, you know, whatever brought those elements to be was its originating cause. And by sustaining cause, uh, I mean the cause of a thing's continued existence. So, for example, you know, uh, uh, you know, the oxygen that surrounds a flame is at least a partial sustaining cause of its existence. It keeps it in existence. Um, so that's the basic idea. Um, it's it, there's a couple confusions that I should clarify with the with the premise. Sure. Um, sometimes people think that when I say material cause, I just mean physical stuff. Um, and I certainly that that is one kind of substance, but I don't want to beg any questions. And so I allow there are other kinds of concrete objects like immaterial substances. You know, God on theism is a substance or a concrete object. He's just an immaterial one. Uh, uh, or angels or human souls uh, would be concrete objects. Um, so that's one clarification. Another one is is that um, sometimes people say, well, if if you're saying that all concrete objects that have an originating or sustaining efficient cause have an originating or sustaining material cause, does that mean the universe had to have a beginning? And the answer is no. Um, if the universe never had an originating uh, efficient cause, then it doesn't need an originating material cause. So the universe could be past eternal. Uh, uh, if it has a, and especially if it doesn't have a sustaining efficient cause, it doesn't need a sustaining material cause. Uh, if the universe is a finite, you know, four dimensional block universe with a beginning point of it, no efficient cause, no problem. It just says things with efficient causes need material causes. And since it didn't have one, no problem. Um, so those are some some clarifications about it about the premise. So by material cause, you're you're I'm assuming you're meaning to capture a kind of Aristotelian notion of material cause, the that which the the new thing is made up of. Mm -hmm. It's it's roughly that. Sometimes people say that material cause in Aristotle's sense and Aquinas' sense is the stuff okay. of which something is made, and I don't necessarily okay. mean that. I mean the stuff from which it was made. So, um, uh, you know, someone could say, you know, the material cause of a vase is the uh, plaster or ceramic material of which it's made. Yeah, in Aristotle's sense, but I mean the stuff from which okay. that stuff was made. So, um, so you know, it's still... <laughs> I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about concrete objects, and you mentioned tropes earlier. So... Mm -hmm. Do that a nominalist approach? Where do abstract objects kind of fit in this concept of substance, or do they even fit into it? Oh, I want to remain neutral on that, and I, I want the the argument to remain neutral on that. You Excellent. could be a nominalist, you could be a Platonist, uh, you could be an Aristotelian about universals. Uh, I just don't I don't want to make any commitments. But but if somebody takes there to be if somebody's committed to tropes as some ontological category of of entities. Uh, you know, collections of particular red things, <laughs> red, you know, red, uh, red instances and a bunch of apples. Uh, that's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I don't, I don't want to commit, but it's just, uh, uh, just, uh, I use those examples as ways of individuating a uh, concrete object from these other ontological categories. So, so now that we have a, a kind of better understanding of, of, uh, of premise one, um, what reasons do we have for thinking that it's actually true? Ah, good question. So I want to say, 
in the broadest of terms, exactly the same grounds that we have for the key causal premise of any, say, cosmological argument. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so basically, universal experience is one. And so from universal experience, we always see when something originates or is sustained, aha, there's a material cause. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, copper pennies come from sheets of copper. Water molecules come from more basic particles. Um, you know, flames come from reacting gases and solids um, and on and on without exception. Um, and so you can run, you know, say an enumerative induction argument, you know, this huge quantity of all the, every single entity we've observed. It's a concrete object that begins or is sustained has material cause. Mm -hmm. uh, so probably all of them whatsoever do. But I think a safer way to do it is just to say it's an inference to the best explanation. The simplest uh, hypothesis um, with the widest scope and fit uh, and conservatism, if you want to say that fit and conservatism are different, um, is just that, well, the reason why we observe this is because it's just a general causal principle that things with originating or sustaining efficient causes have originating and sustaining material causes. So one is experience and from that you could generate inductive and abductive arguments mm -hmm. um another basis is just rational intuition um it just once you just ref understand it and think about it hard enough <laughs> you can just see that it's true um uh you can take a more can you know uh modest approach and just say well it certainly seems to be true i don't know if rational intuition is real but it, i have these seemings <laughs> and when i reflect it certainly seems to be true uh, um, you know, uh, to generate this uh, sort of these seemings or intuitions, um, you can just think about thought experiments. So, for example, uh, and here I'm cribbing from Wes Morriston, uh, who really got me thinking hard about material causes. And who's a previous uh, guest on the show. Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, great guy, and uh, great that you had it. I'm on there. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, he, he talks about a lumberjack. Suppose you meet a lumberjack in a forest and they say, um, hey, look at my log cabin. I just made it out of nothing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you reflect on what that could mean, you know. So, you know, usually you have trees from which you make the wood, you know, and nails and other, other materials to make a log cabin. Um, uh, you know, some kind of cementing material as well. And and say, no, I didn't use any of that, you know. Well, what do you make it out of? Um, did you use the surrounding atmosphere and turn it into, um, you know, logs and so forth, like a genie? No, I didn't do that either. Um, so there's nothing external to me from which I transform. Right. And there's nothing internal to me either. There's no reservoir of energy that I, that, you know, somehow came out of me by an act of will and, transformed into that so nothing internal to me or external to me was the material from which i made it i just said let there be a log cabin where there wasn't one so uh you know the basic idea is it, it's it's like um it seems to be rationally repugnant repugnant it's like you know trying to regurgitate a mitch's lunch um by a dry heave there, if there's nothing in there nothing is coming out so you know you can even if you have you know all power no matter how, how hard you heave nothing is going to come out 
right? Because there's nothing in there to come out. Right. You know, that's a that's a trick. I mean, we just have this intuition, um, and it seems to be the same the, the same kind of intuition that we have, or a similar intuition we have when we say you couldn't just get a, a tiger popping into existence out of nothing without any cause <laughs> at all, whether efficient or material or whatever, right? Uh, it just couldn't be. There's some kind of rational repugnance to both ideas. Now, you could resist it. And in fact, I don't really care if anyone resists it because the problem is just as bad if you reject the principle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could just say, well, you know, David Hume taught us that uh, whatever you could imagine or conceive without contradiction is possible, is metaphysically possible, right? Uh, and so I can imagine, you know, somebody saying, let there be a log cabin where there wasn't one, you know, presto. Um, and that's enough for me, or at least to say that that's possible, a creation ex nihilo block cabins. Right, so the but conceivability is, is serving as a kind of modal evidence for the for the possibility of this. Exactly, and this really liberal, freewheeling kind of conceivability. Like, well, I don't, when, I, when I reflect, I don't see a contradiction, and that's enough. Basically, it's not, it's not a contradiction to suppose otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's true. The same thing goes with imagining or conceiving or intuiting um, a universe popping into existence out of nothing without a cause, right? No contradiction there either. So it looks like both are in the same boat, right? Um, yeah. Um, you, if you accept um, things can't pop into existence without any cause, uh, um, then by, you know, because of universal experience and rational intuition or seeming, then by the same token, you got to accept or reject the other. They seem to stand or fall together. Um, so sure, you can, you can reject the principle of material causality, uh, but then to be consistent, it looks like you're going to have to reject the principle of causality full stop. In <laughs> uh, which case that puts theism in, the, in a load of trouble, because then that means there's a possible world where a universe pops into existence without God. Uh, right. And on classical theism, God is the creator and sustainer of all uh, concrete worlds that exist. <laughs> uh, so you get another refutation of theism by denying it. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty severe dilemma. <laughs> so, so I imagine that someone might just say, "Oh, the, the, none of this is a problem uh, because God is omnipotent, right?" So, problem solved. Uh, yeah, it's bizarre, and it's this 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 rational intuition. It seems to point against it, but um, we're talking about divine beings, and you know. Our cognitive faculties are, are not much use uh, with respect to, to considering uh, the capabilities of a divine being. So would appealing to just brute omnipotence to the to the definition of God, would that be would that get the theist anywhere with respect to this argument? Uh, not without a lot more to say, because mm-hmm. um, on the face of it, it's just saying, well, God's omnipotent. Being omnipotent entails doing anything that meta- can do anything that's metaphysically possible. Therefore, uh, God could create the universe ex nihilo. But the problem is there's a missing premise, and that is creating the universe ex nihilo is metaphysically possible. Right. And I just gave two arguments to say there aren't. So there's burden-shifting grounds to give me to explain why it is possible. <laughs> so a bare appeal to omnipotence well, isn't going to cut it. In a way, some people—I've I mean, delivered this paper a couple of times, and sometimes— 
you know, at, uh, talking to people after, I say, look, in effect, you can take it as an argument that is just, uh, is just saying, well, you know, if theism is true, well, we just learned a new fact about omnipotence. You know, omnipotence doesn't include the possibility of creating things out of nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and we've done similar things with omniscience. We thought, uh, you know, God can know anything. Well, he doesn't know what it's like not to know. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't know what it's like firsthand to sin. Uh, so there's plenty of things an all-knowing being can't know. And maybe this is, you know, it could be God's omnipotent and just you could do anything possible and creating things ex nihilo is just not a possible thing. So one of the other um, responses that you kind of consider uh, in your writings in response to this argument is to point out that you know, with regard to developments in, in quantum cosmology, uh, there have been at least some science popularizers, and I'm here I'm thinking of like Lawrence Krauss uh, in his book, A Universe from Nothing, uh, wherein they argue that um, that actually things do pop into existence out of nothing occasionally. And so it seems that there's at least some kind of scientific ground to uh, endorsing a kind of creation ex nihilo. You know, obviously you'd need to attach a, a person to do the creating out of nothing, but it doesn't seem like that far of a stretch. Um, is this, what What kind of weight would, the, would a response like this have? These are interesting things that, uh, you know, uh, theoretical physicists have said, like Lawrence Krauss and Alexander Vilenkin, uh, you know, they say things that uh, the universe arose from a random fluctuation in a quantum vacuum. Uh, yeah, right. Maybe it did, but a quantum vacuum is counts as a concrete object. Right, right. <laughs> it's something right. exists in its own right and various properties and could undergo change. So it would just be a universe from something. Uh, you know, Vilenkin says... Uh, uh, on his account, you know, we have a universe that shrinks down to a zero radius particle, tunnels through an energy barrier, and then expands uh, into a universe. You know, wow, that's a pretty remarkable particle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> we can fly <laughs> over and uh, it is, exists in its own right and bears properties and then goes change. It sounds like a concrete object, just a zero dimensional concrete object. I mean, I'm granting that uh, souls can be zero-dimensional concrete objects. Uh, so uh, that doesn't seem to be a case of something for nothing. But but uh, I should say two other things about that. So first of all, it doesn't look like there are counterexamples without further evidence. But, but even more importantly, this wouldn't help the theist. This would just say, ah, uh, things can pop into existence out of nothing without a cause after all. So much the worse for theism. Right. <laughs> There's possible where you get a universe without God. Um, so certainly nothing that a theist would want to cling to. But um, perhaps more controversially, at least in uh, strictly speaking, my argument is compatible with universes from nothing. It just says you can't have a universe from nothing without an efficient cause. Right, right, right. So um, all bets are off. It's even compatible. Uh, it's a... Uh, uh, very ecumenical <laughs> principle. Uh, mm -hmm. Self don't think that could happen. Uh, no doubt. Who knows? Maybe all uh, science will show that's wrong. Although I don't know how that could be. I mean, how could you give a set of laws that govern a prior state to a next state that generate a universe when there is no prior state? But anyway, I, I, you know. But who knows? But but in any case, it looks like it wouldn't be of help to a theist. Right. Right.
So this this general principle of, of material causality that we've been discussing, uh, do you think this has uh, any further significance within uh, you know different debates in philosophy of religion? Do you think you know what other uh, debates can it contribute to in this way? Uh, I think it can contribute in another way to philosophy of religion and to metaphysics proper. Um, it, uh, it all in one shot <laughs> to to uh, uh, both goals because um, I think if if you accept the principle and if it's justified, then we have the basis for answering one of the most fundamental questions, and that is why is there something rather than nothing? And it looks like we can go back to Epicurus law, uh, right? We don't really have his writings. We have uh, we have uh, writings about him from Lucretius, but Lucretius gives a nice formulation of an argument for why there's something rather than nothing. And basically, you know, uh, you can't get something for nothing. And so since matter is here, matter must have always been here. <laughs> uh, in which case we have reason to think that it's at least some kind of necessary being maybe quote unquote factually necessary, right? It's a eternal, uncaused, freestanding, uh, independent being you know, this material universe or, or whatever it is, <laughs> uh, uh, you could strengthen the argument by using Kripke's doctrine of origin essentialism, that things have their origins of necessity, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't be me if it wasn't that particular sperm egg pair uh, that led to me. If it was a different one, it wouldn't be Felipe. Um, and by, uh, so the idea is if, things have their origin essentially, and the universe is essentially, uh, wasn't in fact uncaused, uh, wasn't in fact caused, then it's essentially uncaused, uh, uh, in which case you have reason to think the universe is essentially uncreated. Uh, and then if you accept some kind of principle sufficient reason, uh, you might think, well, whatever plays the role of being eternal and essentially uncreated doesn't vary from possible world to possible world, then you have a grounds for thinking the universe is a metaphysically necessary being. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you could answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Because the universe can't not exist. It's a necessary being. I wanted to kind of play devil's advocate and throw a objection out there or, or a possibility that um, would a theist maybe have of an idealist persuasion have some sort of out just by denying the material world altogether and saying that, well, these material, yeah, there's these material causes, but they're the mind of God. Uh, uh, is, that, it, is that an objection that maybe you've considered or? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, there are all sorts of concessive responses, and I've tried to address these elsewhere, but the idea is um, you can't you can sort of deny the universe is a concrete object and say, you know, it's an idea in the mind of God. And then you can become like a Barclayan idealist. And that's a way out. Another way out is to say the universe is a mode or aspect of God. And you could become like a Spinozistic monist. Uh, or you could say the universe is made out of God or is God, in which case you are a panentheist or pantheist, respectively. Um, or you could say, uh, you know, so you could take these roles. You just wouldn't be a classical theist anymore. And the worry is, um, you know, there are people that defend idealism, but they're pretty, you know, there are a few takers. And the worry is um, 
people who would accept a Barclayan argument for God are, it's a, it's probably going to be a tiny school of uh, subset of philosophers. It certainly uh, is, but it's, it's cert- I've seen it. So inspiring philosophy, the, the YouTuber I know has kind of jumped on that idealist bandwagon. Um, yeah. Cause they see, they see the hard problem of consciousness as just intractable. Yeah. Um, I, I, tend to agree with them, by the way. I tend to be a Russellian monist like uh, David Chalmers and others. Uh, um, I mean, I don't really know, but I, I'm kind of agnostic about that. But uh, I, I tend to think that's right. Um, when it, I mean, you'd have to look at all the data across the board to figure something out like that. But that would certainly be a long road to hoe, a tough road to hoe to to make yeah, you have to establish idealism. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's a task in and of itself. Yeah. So it really shows the the force of the argument. I think is is what's how much you're willing. Yeah, it's pretty costly, right? How much you're willing to throw out to to preserve some kind of supernaturalism. Um, you might be stuck with something you really don't want. Uh, uh, Something very unorthodox, which I'm I'm fine with. I tend to think, uh, well, I shouldn't say, but I tend to think that the people who really are interested in the arguments, and not all of them, you know, there's plenty of people who aren't, but uh, tend to be people in the uh, the grand old party, <laughs> and and, yeah. and people in that party, uh, not that I'm, <laughs> not that I have a vendetta against that. I'm just saying that that the people that tend to accept these kinds of arguments are people that aren't going to want to go liberal in those ways <laughs> and become, uh, you know, Barclay idealists, Barclay idealists or Panentheists or Spinozists and so forth, uh, which is fine, right? Well, I guess it's neither here nor there, uh, but, but it does, it would be an interesting result in philosophy of religion if we, hey, we've made progress, right? We can, we can uh, at least rule out one candidate uh, um, uh, worldview and start looking at, say, panentheistic and spinozistic accounts of the divine. Yeah, that would be very interesting. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I think you're right in that um, people who are, are interested in these arguments uh, are going to see that as a radical theological shift. And so they're far more likely to, you know, attempt uh, an objection to, you know, say, premise one. Um, and it's not at all clear that there are any decent objections to to the first premise there yeah and like i said even if there are then you know so much the worse for theism because then you get possible worlds with right right <laughs> with the uh, universes without god um but also i think um i think the most interesting thing to say or perhaps the most interesting thing a theist can say with the least amount of concession is to say well maybe the universe was made from some sort of reservoir of energy internal to God. I think, you know, when I ask my students that in philosophy of religion classes, they tend to think that's what creation ex nihilo is. Because <laughs> I think hmm. they implicitly accept the premise. Uh, um, and so that's an interesting view. But then, you know, you can kiss the cosmological <laughs> argument goodbye, because then that means this reservoir of energy is eternal and uncaused. <laughs> Uh, right. And, you know, which is something that the non has said about the universe. Uh, we have an eternal 
uncaused universe, which is either a brute factor, metaphysically or factually necessary, um, which would just be the ultimate cosmological argument killer. I mean, they could say, well, the reservoir came from nothing, but then you have the argument all over again. Where, you know, how, how could that be? <laughs> right, right. So what's, what's kind of interesting here is, I mean, this is a bit of a side, a side tangent here, but um, so far as I know, uh, at least with respect to Genesis 1, Hebrew scholars actually say that what's being uh, described there is that God is, that there's a kind of formless void, a pre-existing formless void uh, on which God acts to create the world, as in he creates, there is a material cause to the world, right? There is a, there is a log to the log cabin, essentially, that out of which God is creating uh, the universe, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'm no Old Testament exegete or expert in that, but I think, you know, a clear reading of it seems to indicate that, mm -hmm. that the universe was uh, created from prior stuff. Um, basically, God is like a demiurge that sort of fashioned pre-existing primordial matter, which is probably factually or metaphysically necessary. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's an interesting view. Uh, the worry is, uh-oh, right, uh, if you accept that, then you're probably going to have to reject a lot of um, apologetics because yeah. then, it, yeah, it seems I didn't like, know any of this. I, well, what y'all are saying right now, I didn't know. Yeah, I, it's and it's rightly so. It's it's I mean, it's understandable that people don't hear that because I think that philosophers of religion in the theist camp, uh, they might not realize it, but I think implicitly they understand that. Unless they accept the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, you you know not only do you lose some of the preeminence and providence of God and, and the ultimate dependence of creation on Creator, but you no longer are able to individuate theism from other views like panentheism and pantheism and idealism and right. Spinozism and demiurgism. Uh, uh, so they need it. <laughs> they need creation ex nihilo to give arguments that would individuate it from other views. But on the other hand, right, it looks to be metaphysically impossible. So they, they're stuck with this dilemma, you know. Uh, it's a doctrine they need to rationally support and individuate theism, but the thing that they need is in itself metaphysically impossible. Very interesting. So Felipe, uh, what are some of your other current research projects? I know you've just uh, finished a collection on, on which you've contributed on, on modal epistemology. Um, what other stuff have you got in the works? Um, so right now I'm working on a book with Joshua Rasmussen at Azusa Pacific University, uh, who's a really good philosopher, and he, he has what I think are the best versions of uh, Leibniz's or Leibnizian cosmological arguments. Uh, and we're uh, working on a book project uh, on theism for and against, and uh, very friendly. The goal is just to have this very friendly, collegial, cooperative uh, approach. Uh, a book that sort of the, in the spirit of the book you just did with uh, Randall Rouser, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So hopefully it'll have that kind of uh, similar spirit, if we're lucky. And uh, I think we will. He's a, he's a friend of mine and a good guy. Um, and so we're basically, uh, you know, he gives his Leibnizian argument, and I give the kinds of arguments and considerations I just gave. Mm -hmm. And of course, we'll talk about the problem of evil and stuff like that. Um, 
But my main thing, in addition to that, is just trying to apply stuff from my dissertation and from this book to issues in philosophy of religion. Um, so the the thrust of that book that that uh, Bob Fisher and I just uh, completed uh, editing is just to say that our knowledge of possibility is grounded in our knowledge of the actual world uh, through deductive and inductive and abductive inference. You know, I know this table can be moved around because I've seen actual tables like this moved around <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, a growing number of modal epistemologists who are becoming empiricists in this way. You know, Timothy Williamson is arguably going in the uh, leading modal epistemologist is going in this direction uh, in his book, The Philosophy of Philosophy, and uh, uh, a number of other philosophers. Bob just put out a book called Modal Justification by Theories, which gives an empiricist account of modal knowledge by way of inference to the best explanation from actual theories. Hmm. Um, and uh, my view is kind of pluralist that we know what's possible through deduction, induction, and abduction, uh, and observation-sensitive theory. Um, and, uh, but if, if these accounts are correct and that exhausts, exhausts our modal knowledge, then we're not going to have knowledge probably of far-out possibilities remote from ordinary experience. And so right. I'm thinking about this implication, and I want to write a book uh, about natural theology and modal, modal epistemology, and that since just about every uh, argument for theism depends on a crucial possibility premise uh, and that's usually remote from ordinary experience, all of them are going to fail. So, oh, wow. So just for primarily epistemic reasons, is just, we don't have access to those distant modal worlds then. Yeah. So think of Alvin Plantinga's modal ontological argument. One of the core prem the key premise is just that it's possible. There's a possible world where there's a metaphysically necessarily being God. And once you accept that in S5, axiom S5 of S5 modal logic, you're pretty much stuck with theism. <laughs> Whatever's possibly necessary is necessary simplicator. So it's a necessary being. So, but the, the problem is, you know, the notion, the claim that it's, it's possible there's an Anselmian being is far out from ordinary experience. You know, it's not like, you know, if I were to cross the street right now, I wouldn't get hit by a Mack truck, you know, or that lime on my counter could be sliced in half or, you know, the kinds of humdrum modal claims uh, that we need to survive and reproduce. So, um, you know, and, you know, crucially to depend, uh, to defend the uh, cosmological argument, or at least Leibniz's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the universe is a dependent being or a contingent being, and that's going to depend on largely modal evidence of, well, you can imagine a universe coming to be out of nothing, right? Or, you know, there's this famous uh, subtraction argument. Just take the universe and subtract an atom. Is that possible? Yeah. What about two? Yeah. You can get down to the last atom and subtract it. Is that possible? Yeah. So it's possible for there to be no universe. Uh, so it's dependent. But the worry is, wait a minute. <laughs> um, sure, I can imagine there being fewer cats and cars, but... Um, I can't, you know, when when cats in cars uh, are annihilated, it's not like the matter that makes them up is annihilated. Right. So, so um, we don't have evidence that it's possible for 
parcels of matter or energy to be annihilated. Just the just this just the things made out of matter energy. Um, so it looks like the you know the best modal evidence we have in this attraction argument doesn't get off the ground. And uh, you know maybe the argument from religious experience survives, but uh, it may be some versions of the design argument. But uh, a lot is going to have to go. That sounds like that's got a really broad, uh, really broad implications to it. That's really interesting. Yeah, and the arguments for dualism too. Some of them, but um, yeah, I think so. I think so too. It's like uh, you know, I'm a big admirer of Hume. I think it's he's one of the greatest philosophers. Maybe I'm partial. You know, we share a birthday, but uh, he, um, <laughs> he. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, he's very skeptical about uh, our knowledge of the actual world. But he was very, very liberal in his knowledge, what he thought we had knowledge of possible worlds. You know, as yeah. long as it's not, as long as it's contradiction free, it's possible. Um, and so it's basically just taking Hume one step further in, in his empiricism. Even our modal knowledge has to be grounded in experience. Um, in which case, you know, our knowledge of possibility is going to be pretty humdrum. <laughs> I know I'm working on a bunch of papers. I just have been short on time in the last last year or so, but I have a bunch of stuff in the works. There's one paper on um, the design argument um, that I a, a point I don't think hasn't been pushed is you know Hume Hume kind of got close to it in the dialogues by you know with the who designed the designer objection, but I think it, that the objection that um, that objection can go deeper, right? The deeper point seems to be that um, if God is kind of like a watch without a watchmaker, um, then we're saying that, you know, theism is committed to the view that there is teleology um, at the metaphysical ground floor that God can't create. Um, so, but hmm. if that's true, you know, on theism, you would expect there to be teleology without design <laughs> whether you know so there's you know right at the foundation of the theistic worldview is an uncaused watch um and uh and the worry is that oh so theism predicts that there'll be um uncaused foundational teleology and the worry is isn't that teleology is making a comeback yeah that's right it is <laughs> Thomas uh, Nagel know. and uh, uh, Alistair McIntyre with virtue ethics. Uh, I've seen a lot of themes of, of teleology. Yeah, and biology, too. It's coming back. Uh, uh, there's an epistemologist, Peter Graham, at UC Riverside, who has sort of a naturalistic version of proper functionalism in epistemology, uh, where, you know, through evolutionary selection pressures, uh, our our cognitive faculties have been designed, uh, you know, uh, and so one cause of intel one one cause of design is intelligence, but another one is you know selective pressures of, uh, you know, evolution acting on uh, uh, critters with scarce resources uh, and whatever features allow them to survive and reproduce in their natural habitat under normal conditions counts as their purpose or design uh, the so, aim to which the, to which they tend yeah exactly so it's you know teleology is perfectly at home 
in a naturalistic universe. Um, so uh, maybe maybe design isn't fundamental on this view, but uh, it looks like there's nothing wrong with unconscious teleology. Um, it looks like theism is committed to it. <laughs> uh, but if so, then isn't that going to kill, say, the fine-tuning design argument? You know, theism predicts, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, fine-tune things without causes. Uh, so would I really would would a fine-tuned universe really be surprising <laughs> on theism whether or not God designed anything? Right, right. It would be prior to you know it'd be uh, I guess conceptually prior to God. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe even ontologically prior. Uh, it may just you know just uh, teleology just floating around out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah, very well, interesting. Well, I, I would, uh, I guess, to kind of wrap things up, I certainly, so I've been a big fan of your work, Felipe, for, for quite a while now, and you have a debate with Dr. Rhoda. Um, oh, Bimo. yeah, he's a great guy. It's too, and it's probably one of my favorite debates that I've ever seen, and it, it costs like two bucks to rent it, and I've rented it probably four times. <laughs> oh, Because <wow. laughs> I, like, I, I just kept watching, because I just... By the way, I'd, little... have to, I had, I'd have to buy it now if I was going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I certainly uh, uh, recommend to people. You know, it's yeah, it's two dollars, but it's it's well worth it. Um, and the I think the title of it was "Are uh, Theistic Beliefs Reasonable?" or "Are Christian Beliefs Reasonable?" I can't remember the title off the top of my head I to tell you the truth, I can't remember. It's something like that. Yeah, is I'm pretty uh, sure it's "Are Christian Beliefs." reasonable i could be mistaken we'll correct that if yeah, it's wrong i bet if you just put in you know fully bailey and michael rota debate <laughs> it might come up or it's, uh, it's a super refreshing debate too because i feel like it there there's no animosity or sense of one of you trying to defeat the other and y'all both just present some just really interesting arguments I mean, yeah, from start to finish, good. it was. Uh, you had one of it was about appealing to aesthetic properties. Oh right. And, and yeah. I, I was, I, I, I watched that part probably five or six times, just going, "Wow, this is such a, this is such a neat thing to think about." It's like, oh, what okay. if, what if we do have a realism about aesthetic values? What kind of implications does it have for theism? And I just hadn't thought of that. Wow. Yeah, I know. You know, is what's weird is. Before I was a Christian or anything, when I was a little kid, I was, you know, looking at books on, you know, flora and fauna, and I was just shocked over and over of how ugly and revolting much of the natural world was. <laughs> um, Some of your examples were just great, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, what's that, uh, the Simothoa exigua, that... Uh, critter that latches onto a fish's tongue and sucks it dry until it falls off and it becomes the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's horrific. And now thanks to the wonders of the internet, you, you know, I just start Googling around like <laughs> the world's most revolting creatures. And, you know, uh, you know, so you could just go to Netflix and watch, you know, these nature shows. And they're, usually they're just, it's so funny. It's like the unstated premises. Look how revolting the world is. But they're trying to say how amazing it is. Um, but, you know, the way in which animals just um, prey on each other and 
is just revolting. Um, I, I don't know. When I was a kid, I just thought this just can't be a benevolent world, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. By the way, that's another argument I'm working on. Not, not just that the universe is revolting, but um, it looks like it has evil design baked into it. You know, like the design plan of many organisms is just to cause other organisms misery. Um, you know, uh, um, what is it? The uh, a certain kind of wasp will um, inject a, a sperm and an egg into, say, a worm, and and it fertilizes in there, and then it burrows out of the chest of the, you know, centipede, uh, caterpillar or whatever it is. You know, basically just like the movie Alien. Um, you know, it's just the most revolting thing, and, and just for nature to be set up designed to cause, you know, sort of revolting and horrific suffering uh, just, you know, seems to point to the opposite conclusion <laughs> if, if yeah. there's some kind of There certainly seems to be a tension there. Yeah. Yeah, or the uh, the Margay cat that, that mimics the cry of um, baby chimps so that the par- parent chimps will go look for them and then they'll go eat the parents. Uh uh, well, that's just clever. I mean. yeah, <laughs> yeah, well played. So often we just get stuck with a few arguments against theism, and I'm like, there's so many more out there. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. The Real Atheology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camo, The Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Kim Bushkovsky, Andrew Snyder, Jason Mekoweta, Evan Wirtz, Bob April, and Alexander Soane.